This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. So as more and more of our soft plastics are being discovered in warehouses... 3,000 tonnes to be precise. Questions are being asked around why? How could this happen? But should our question be bigger than why wasn't our waste recycled? And should the question be why do we use so many soft plastics in the first place? We haven't always used soft plastics. Think about your grandparents or your great-grandparents. They didn't have plastic wrap. And it was only until about 1966 that the whole Glad brand was born in Australia with the launch of plastic wrap. So up until then, we didn't use it. It was labelled at the time a totally new concept for storing food. And if you skip forward to around 2018, nine out of 10 Australian households were purchasing some kind of plastic wrap. But we've seen the amount of waste that we produce and how we get rid of it change and evolve over the years. Many of us would remember things like burning rubbish in incinerators in the backyard. If you're like me, you'll remember when the green wheelie bin was first introduced. And then the second bin, the plastic recycling, was the next big move. So what's the next big move? And what if our focus wasn't on how to best recycle our waste and rubbish, but what if our focus was how to remove it altogether? Could we eliminate rubbish? On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning, my name's Rochelle Hunt and your co-host today, well, for a topic like this, it could be none other than Joost Backer, zero waste environmental advocate, florist, designer, restaurant entrepreneur and documentary out on you as we speak, Joost, called Greenhouse by Joost. A warm welcome back to the Conversation Hour. I think I know your answer to this already, but <laughs> could we eliminate rubbish? Absolutely. It doesn't need to exist at all. And it's not. I think the language, I mean, the reason why we use spelling, spell, it's a spell, you know. So we actually give this, the terminology that we use almost denigrates the material to rubbish. It's a resource. And I'm a big believer in, I know that the world's obsessed with separating rubbish and having four or five bins. I think Richard Pratt was actually on the right path. He wanted to go back to one truck, one pickup, and um, deal with the contamination, mm-hmm. which is actually organic waste, which actually, which makes all the other things really problematic to recycle. So if we can take organic waste out of our waste stream and don't even have a bin for it, I think that we need to use technology to process at where we live. And it's insane the volume of energy that we're sitting on there so there's a lot of companies globally working on solutions for that there's a company that visited in israel back in 2019 Mm. that showed me technology that allowed organic waste in an apartment in brooklyn let's say to be turned every kilo to be turned into an hour of gas for cooking and hot water use and the nutrients then ultimately ended up being converted and that technology is not that well it exists there's Mm. there's about 20 million systems in china and there's close to 50 million systems in india and that uses that organic waste as a resource which makes it for makes it for recyclers so complicated to recycle so there's organic waste right so when we're talking about our food scraps and whatever it may be but then i sort of see rubbish as different all of the plastic all of the soft plastics all of the stuff that's wrapped around the things surely those two need to be separated and be seen as different forms of waste, like good waste and bad waste. No, it's all the same. I mean, if you look at medical waste or uh, soft plastics, there's technology. So Korea is leading the world in this stuff. About 25 years ago, the Korean government said landfill is, is, is not an option. And so they supported companies that found solutions. And pyrolysis technology is actually a solution that is, I think, is a brilliant solution because you lose nothing. It's um, a technology that allows you to, like making charcoal, burn uh, a material without oxygen and you return it back into its original oil and its original elements. And if there's steel, let's say, um, I convinced uh, a group of, of 
uh, investors in Mombolk to invest in a pyrolysis plant back in 2015. We purchased one. We all um, we invested about a million dollars in a plant and spoke to the local council and they allowed us to set it up in uh, Monbok. And we pyrolysized everything from medical waste to drum muster plastic to um, all the problematic soft plastics, contaminated plastic, greenhouse covers, strawberry plastic, everything that would seem to be almost impossible to recycle. Mm. And the the yield and, and what we got was incredible. Now, this is not game-changing, world-leading technology. This is technology that can, you know, there's lots of companies making this technology. But... I guess it's around how do we normalise it and surely there has to be questions around too of not how do we get rid of it and recycle it once it's in our households but the responsibility that goes on to big organisations and companies around not using it in the first place and the role of supermarkets as well and why I always think of, right, the cucumber example. Why is there plastic around a cucumber? Does it actually, because then it comes into a food waste conversation. Absolutely. So do we need the soft plastic around the cucumber so that the cucumber can last longer so that we don't get the organic waste. Well, I mean, there's lots of companies now turning food waste into plastic and that's great because it means that the whole lot can go into... into. I'm not a big fan of using a crop or growing a crop to grow plastic. That's not... You know, that means we just need more land. But there are lots of byproducts that can turn into plastic, like uh, potato peels and, and sugarcane waste and that sort of thing. There's a lot of technology around that. But it, it, you've got to understand that Australia's been in this place before. So in, in uh, the late 90s, most of us will remember that people were dumping oil and, and sump oil and along, you know, in creeks and the EPA was constantly trying to work out where's, who's dumping this. Well, the problem was that it was so expensive to get rid of this oil that the Howard government came up with a policy where they you could bring these to the tip for free and it solved it's that making problem. making it easy. Absolutely. And That's they paid 40 cents, which they still do today, to every business that recycles that oil. But then we try to make it easy when it comes to our soft plastics and, and look what happened there as well. In just a moment, we're going to speak to an urban archaeologist around just how our rubbish, how our waste, how our garbage has changed over the years. Garth's in Gladstone Park. Morning, Garth. Yeah, g'day. How are you? Good. What did you want to say? Yeah, yeah I just, I was just in my local shopping centre. I just see like uh, people bagging up bananas in plastic wrap, and it's just there, or more and more. Um, uh, I guess the the shopping centres putting in fruit and veg into pre-packed things that you don't need. Yeah, I've noticed that yeah. as well. Apples in yeah. plastic containers wrapped in plastic. Absolutely. Yeah, and snow peas, though, you like, name it. And on television the other day, I was watching a, doc, oh, a show about uh, one of the large a, um, a supermarkets, wholesale supermarkets. This is in the UK, selling 20 bottles of water for £3.70. That's roughly about $8. And just doesn't make sense. The role so, of supermarkets has to be discussed and I know this is something that we'll probably chat more about Yoast throughout the program but I mean you're in the process at the moment of designing a waste-free supermarket how possible is that because honestly if we, you walk around the supermarket now as hard as you try to get zero plastic or zero waste in your shopping basket it just ends up in there yeah but you know you can do it without it that's the thing. And there are lots of supermarkets. They're not the big ones, but there are lots of supermarkets that are plastic-free. Um, and Callista Biodynamic in, in uh, uh, up where I live, you can shop there all the time with no plastic. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like one of my friends believes it's better to have like four apples in a container that's wrapped in plastic because then the apples don't contain the stickers. Now, he recycles organic waste and his number one problem is this, these stupid stickers. stickers that go on yeah. fruit, you know, which if you've got a worm farm, at the end, ultimately, all that's left is these stupid stickers. You oh, know? mate, I had the stupid stickers conversation with Millie from ABC Gardening Australia and we are not alone in yeah. those stickers. And because, I mean, what at the end of the day, what, you buy a... A red delicious instead of a pink lady, we'll get over it. I mean, yeah, and, yeah. and most of us know the difference of apples. Let's go back to the beginning to see how we've changed and evolved just a little bit. Dr. Sarah Hayes is a senior research fellow at Deakin University and an urban archaeologist. Sarah, I guess for you, rubbish is 
how you track time. It's how you discover moments and periods. So strangely, it would be relatively important to you. But you must see how we've gotten rid of our rubbish change a lot over the over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, most of archaeology is about finding out things about people who lived in the past. But I've sort of become, <laughs> I guess, quite fixated on actually the rubbish and the way that people were, I guess, thinking about rubbish and the way they were just choosing what to discard. And that's sort of become more and more where my interest lies. And yeah, certainly in 19th century Melbourne, you see, I guess, I think, in my opinion, a lot of the same patterns we see today really uh, being played out in the 19th century as well. So, you know, <laughs> all those sorts of things you've already touched on about convenience, making it easy for people. If it wasn't easy, people just didn't do it. <laughs> all that kind of stuff, you can see that right back, you know, even in the 1850s. So what were people discarding back then? I would have thought there would have been less waste, but are you saying that we sort of we were just as bad then as we are now? Um, look, you know, it's it's... It would have been far less volume <laughs> and, you know, plastics are certainly their own unique blend of um, problems, <laughs> but the, the, I, I feel like the same human behaviours are there. So um, you're still getting domestic rubbish, you're getting like, you know, so your bones and your fruit scraps and all that kind of stuff. Um from people's meals are getting discarded. And, you know, amazingly, you, you find, like, T-bone steaks from the 1850s and 60s. <laughs> wow. You know, the, amazingly, the bones don't dis- degrade as quickly as you would think they would. Um, How you, old you are steaks are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah, very, very old ones. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, just, yeah, yeah. So you find butchered bone quite a bit. Um, oyster shells, all that kind of stuff, it, 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 amazingly, will just sit in the soil for hundreds and hundreds of years. I won't bang on about the oyster shells too much. People can go back and <laughs> listen to a show that I did on oysters. There, There is a fascinating history of oysters in Victoria and in particular in our CBD and the amount of oyster bars that we had and how they were just kind mm. of the working man's food. You know, it's what you go and yeah. get at lunchtime instead of a sushi roll or something. And there yeah. are so many oyster shells. What about how we got rid of our rubbish en masse, Sarah? I mean, you know, were we just dumping it in the mm. Yarra? Were we burying it? How did we get rid of it? <laughs> uh, all, of, all of the above. <laughs> uh, people were dumping things in the river um, and in the ports. Uh, there was lots of sort of excess merchandise that came to Australia and couldn't be sold and would get dumped um, in the rivers and ports. Um, and then I, I guess once people, once objects are made it into people's domestic environments, into their homes, um, you really, you, you can kind of track fashion as well. Like you can see that like they're throwing out um, um, plates that have gone out of fashion, like dining sets that have gone out of fashion. Um, we found in the CBD like... Uh, a deposit of like trousers and shoes and <laughs> things that couldn't be sold at a draper's shop that all got buried in the backyard. Um, and you know, at this point in time, like there was no, at the beginning of Melbourne, it was really there was no rubbish collection at all. Um, so people just had to figure out something to do with it. And as we move through, <laughs> as we move through, like that's really still the case by the 1860s. Um, the first domestic rubbish collection in Melbourne was began in 1867 um, and I think what's really interesting is that e- even in those years waste was still a massive problem there was still stuff way too much stuff because um, people could only discard like one box of rubbish per week and they had to be home when someone came by to collect it and they had to pay them so um, you can see again that convenience thing a, whole, a lot of people weren't using that service and were dumping things in the Carlton Gardens or other parks around Melbourne or in the street. Um, and people and were getting sick <laughs> as a result, Sarah, weren't they? When we look at some of the disease that was being spread as, as a result, did they go hand in hand? Yeah, look, it goes hand in hand with the whole system because the lack of sewerage infrastructure in Melbourne was incredibly problematic right through until the 1890s. Um, and so really the two the two are closely related. So people aren't, like they weren't, there wasn't much priority in Melbourne placed on either removing rubbish from people's homes or toileting arrangements. So, yeah, <laughs> there was certainly a lot of filth, a lot of disease. Um, you know, streets, like, when it rained, the cesspits would overflow and so you'd have sewage filling people's basements and all this kind of stuff. 
Um, and, you know, you think about, like, there were butchers' shops in, in the middle of Melbourne and they were discarding all their stuff in backyards as well. So, um Wow. Yeah, and obscene amount of teeth <laughs> as well, because there was lots of dentists and lots of people having their teeth removed. And that was the other freaky thing I discovered, I think, when I spoke to you last time, Sarah, is that there's a lot of teeth but buried in and amongst uh, a lot of our rubbish around uh, Melbourne and, and beneath our buildings and whatnot. Just finally, Sarah, I was hoping that I'd feel better, you know, that we've got better <laughs> over time. But when you think about fashion and the fact that that fashion is still sitting there and fast fashion has become a, a bigger issue, what's been the most mm. significant change that you've seen when it comes to just how we discard things? I think it's just purely the acceleration. So, you know, all those same things exist in terms of fashion and keeping up to date and the attitudes to discarding and um, you know, there were recycling factories in Melbourne in the 19th century, but there was still plenty of complete bottles being discarded so in my mind all of those exact same things are happening now but just on a much much greater magnitude um, and, and I think that's a magnitude in terms of population size but also a magnitude in the expectations and the turnover at which people are consuming things. Sarah thanks so much for your time. No worries. Dr Sarah Hayes Senior Research Fellow at Deakin University and Urban Archaeologist. Yost Yes, Backer is with you, environmental advocate, zero waste advocate. You may have seen either his documentary, many of the houses and restaurants that he's been a part of over the years. We won't have time to go down the fashion end today because the amount of fast fashion and the amount of waste that that causes and the problems that that causes, not just here for us locally, but globally. But were you surprised to hear that there's boots and trousers? Uh, Not really. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, that's how we know what we know about the past but to me if we don't transition to a circular system it'll be our downfall as a civilization the romans the greeks so many civilizations of the past ended up failing because they had this linear system where they extracted you know the romans ultimately had to grow their grains in northern africa because they'd stripped all the nutrients from their soil because they didn't return it's very few uh, successful uh, multi-generational populations. The Chinese have successfully for thousands of years grown food on the same land, but that's because they've got really amazing processes of returning their, what we call waste, but they know is a resource back into the same food system. And I think that that is really mm. a really valuable thing that we should observe and actually learn from and do. And I wonder whether it takes something huge to happen. So when you look at the shift towards the type of energy that we want to use and consume at the moment, it's taken exorbitant prices for, I think, the average person to consider not putting gas into their home, to try and find a way to convert to an electric car if they can afford it, for us to look at ways to make all of those forms of energy more affordable because of how expensive it is. Totally, but therein lies, are we creating the next problem? You know, we know that there's between 40 and 50,000 children in uh, mining cobalt in, in the Congo at the moment because of this huge appetite for cobalt, for batteries, car batteries in particular. We will need nine times more cobalt next year than what we needed last year. Nine times more. And we've already got forty to 50,000 children that we know of uh, in the mines. And so if we don't know how to recycle those batteries, that's insane because those batteries only have a six to eight year lifespan. So it, it, we're just doing the same thing all over again, yet there's so much waste, like just the berry that covers the, the coffee bean. We know of the volume of coffee that we drink globally. Just that berry, if we ferment that into an alcohol, we can run cars on alcohol. Henry Ford designed the Model T car to run on alcohol. That is enough to run 2 million cars annually on alcohol, just that one single waste stream. See that because of how much coffee we drink, all of a Absolutely. sudden. Absolutely. You know, so <laughs> if, we, if we start looking at, we need to start looking at all these things as resources. That's mm. why I think it's really important that we change the language that we use. And, yeah. and there's so, like fashion is another amazing thing. That there's so much amazing technology there. Um, there's a great company called uh, New Cycle, what's called EVRNU, they've developed technology and the CEO of Levi Strauss came out two years ago and said by 2025, Levi's, the largest user of denim, will use no virgin denim, no virgin cotton. They've developed a process where they can get five cycles out of a pair of denim jeans. Let's have a chat to Paul. He's in Heathmont. Hi, Paul. Oh, hi, Rochelle. Um, 
fantastic program this morning. It's very timely for us because we've moved into an older home. We've moved from a modern home into an older home. The kitchen has Tasmanian oak. We just wanted a minor update and yet kitchen designers and so on, they wanted all the Tasmanian oak ripped out and replaced with laminated um, chipboard, basically. We haven't gone ahead with that. Mm. Um, also, with the new kitchen appliances, I've had four appliances delivered today, beautifully delivered in polystyrene packaging. I don't know what to, to do, do with it. it. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've got small recycling bins here. Uh, it's all I can assume is I'll have to break it up into smaller pieces and it will go into landfill. And I I, I find that I know. absolutely terrifying. I know, Paul. And given that we're coming into Christmas and more and more of those packages are going to be arriving on our doorstep, that is such a good question. We're going to put that to Joost Backer in just a moment. But before we do, because man is super busy and we want to pick his brain a little bit, is Adam Hill. He's the Managing Director of Wonthaggy Recycle. He's also on the tools himself and has been driving a garbage truck around the Bass Coast for some time. Adam, when we talk about the next big move when we look at the evolution of waste and rubbish. The Basque Coast is really uh, forward thinking a lot of the time and I know that bin surveillance is something that you've been looking at. How does it work and is that helping us think about what we do, what we use and how we get rid of it? Uh, yes, so in 2017 we were awarded a new contract with Basque Shire Council and part of that was you needed to have a minimum of five um, cameras that are DVR recording, constantly recording. And we implemented a system called Waste Track. So that's like our background system. So basically the drivers have got a, a iPad in their truck and any contents that goes into the hopper, if they notice that there's contamination, they hit the screen. It takes a photo of the contamination and of the property at the same time. And it gets uploaded into our database. Each week we email that to cancel and then they have a waste education wow. officer. Brilliant that actually educates the public. How great is that? When we think about the evolution of just how our garbage is picked up, you know, growing up in the 70s, it was always the fit footballers that were running behind the truck, yeah. picking up our little silver bin and chucking it at My dad would always <laughs> leave a slab of VB yeah, out the front on Christmas Eve. Yeah. 100% because you generally forgot to put your bin out, right? Yeah, <laughs> we would leave a slab as well. But Adam, now you're talking about, you know, iPads and cameras in there. Is it working? Like, is this something... That's yes, successful? It is, it is working. So with our uh, curbside recycling, we have a contamination rate of around 10%, which is really, it's a really good quality recycling product. And with our FOGO, um, our food organics, green organics, we're down at around 1% contamination, wow. which is fantastic. Yeah. So it's really good results. Do more people need to do stuff like this, Yoast? Well, I know that in Holland they they do the same thing and they weigh and charge you for each pickup. So some people don't put their bin out for a month. So they only pay once a month and then they pay on for weight and they pay for the pickup. And so that had a huge impact on, you know, because suddenly you've, and, and you know when you're contaminating it as well, you're getting fines. So that has a dramatic impact on how much you end up yeah, it has a direct impact on yeah. you. Adam, over the years that you've been in this industry, have you yeah. noticed that people, well, I guess what has made people's behaviour change the most? Is it the fact that they might be fined, that there's photographs being taken? Is it education at schools? What's making people's behaviour change the most, do you think? I think we're becoming more educated on uh, how to deal with our waste, definitely. And a lot of the school the schools now really teach that and the children bring that home and teach their parents more than anything, I think. So, yeah, I think it's a lot to do with education. And on a totally separate note, there were some really interesting stories that were going around, I think, last week around why our rubbish collection is just so early in the morning. You know, why are our bins getting picked up at six o'clock in the morning, especially if it's, you know, your one day off to sleep in? Why do you have to pick up our rubbish so early, Adam? Well, mainly around CBD areas or where there's high traffic where they're going to be parking their cars, we need to get in and service the bins before the cars get in and park to get out of that area. So that's the main reason, really. Especially commercial areas or CBDs even start earlier than 6am. 
but with residential, any high traffic areas or even school zones, we try and get in, service them and get out before um, it gets busy. Okay, see, that makes a lot of sense now, doesn't it? You've answered so many questions. Adam, we know you've got a meeting to race to, so we'll let you go. Thanks so much. No worries. Thank you very much. That's Adam Hill, Managing Director of Wonthaggy Recycling and been a garbage truck driver for a long time, so he's seen all of those changes. This text here goes, I live in the Bass Coast. I've had a sticker put on my recycle bin when something was in there that shouldn't be. It was fantastic and helpful and a great talking point for my young children. It's genius, really, isn't it? Absolutely, because, you know, once you know people are looking, then you change. It's, uh, it's sad to know. But, you know, the, the, the levies, there's a, a levy that's on landfill in Victoria, has been, I think, for about 10 years. And the idea is that that money that they raise will go towards technology that can then help businesses to transform that waste into a resource. Um, that... I think that we're on the cusp of a lot of those things coming out and changing the way that we deal with these materials. And yeah, I believe we're headed into a really exciting time. And the concern is that there's a lot of... We had uh, Angus Taylor come up to Mombok when he was the energy minister and he was responsible for this portfolio and Warren Truss and, and James Molino and all these people coming up. And this idea that waste to energy is a solution. And it's really interesting that in the Netherlands, my uncle works in a waste to energy plant they're moving away from it because ultimately it's actually just burning rubbish and then you're not worried about whether it's contaminated because you're just burning it and the energy that you get from that is so low. Then the problem is that calling this waste to energy and then having all these different technologies under that same banner means that some really brilliant technologies that actually recover a really high percentage get dumped in the same thing. And I know that the Victorian government is looking at waste to energy plants, but the Dutch are moving away from them because they know it's not recycling. It's actually just burning a potential future resource that could be really valuable. So where do we look then? Do we look at smaller organisations and companies that are making great inroads and are really progressive? Do we look overseas to places and countries and towns and communities that have been doing it well for some time? Or do we need to set our own path here? There's amazing technology that was developed here. You know, pyrolysis technology was actually developed and pioneered in Australia. And it's it's interesting that in places like Korea, they use some of those original studies that were done here in Australia to help them inform their the way that they build their technology. But there's now um, problematic hospital waste getting turned into hydrogen, alcohol. You know, there's there's these things are currently being incinerated. So we're using natural gas to burn this contaminated waste. So we're using a resource to get rid of a resource, whereas in places like Korea, they're using that resource to create like something that's really valuable. Alistair's in Seddon. Hi, Alistair. Hi, Rochelle and guests. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to um, mention a, um, a Whole Foods um, business uh, that uh, had its last day on Sunday in Footscray. Um, I've been going there for a number of years now and bringing my jars and and bits and filling up with detergents and various grains and other things. Um, Really loved going there and and not uh, coming back with packaging. Um, And reasons for it closing, I think, is something to do with uh, struggling to find a a buyer and then the, the property being rented out to somebody else. Um, but it just seems so backward in, in this conversation that we see businesses like this um, go to the wall for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Um, and I just wonder, you know, is, is there a place for, say, councils to be providing uh, similar kinds of services, um, you know, easily accessible to, to people in, in their local area? Um, that's not sort of, you know, at, at the whim of the market <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the profits that are, are required and that sort of thing. Alistair, there are lots of people saying similar things. Is this now no, maybe not the role of the council and different councils doing different things? Is it not the role of the state or the federal government as well? But it's a shame when you have your solution and then that solution shuts down. And I know that we're seeing more and more, because often you hear the solution, go to your local farmer's market. but. Yeah. A lot of us can't shop at the times when farmers' markets are on. You know, the convenience of supermarkets being open 
really early in the morning or really late at night, depending on the sort of work that you do or, or where you live. But I, anecdotally, you know, I'm hearing more and more farmers markets or you know just markets opening up midweek, you know, for locals and yep. at times that they can be made accessible. So every time we have conversations like this, it comes back to a community response, doesn't yeah, it? And yeah. how can your community react to this, whether it be the Bass Coast or whether it be a shop in Footscray? Yeah, and I think that the government, the federal government and state government can do this, but they don't have to physically do it themselves. They can, you know, going back to the, it, it was actually um, the Howard government that introduced the product stewardship for oil scheme, and that was in uh, 2001. And within 18 months, they completely eliminated the dumping. There was not one illegal dumping registered in a month, uh, which was very unusual in Australia. So it just meant that private enterprise got on knowing that they would get 40 cents for every litre of whatever. Can, it could be paint. It could be sump oil. It could be highly contaminated. Drum muster is a result of that. Um, and suddenly they solved that problem. And this is the same thing. The federal government could solve this overnight. They don't need to be building these things. Private enterprise Fund can get on. people that already yeah. know how to do it. What do you think? What would you like to see in your local council and your local area? Or maybe something's already being done. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt and Joost Backer are with you. We're talking about the evolution of rubbish and as more and more of us discovered that our soft plastics weren't actually being recycled and were just being stored in warehouses, we start to think, well, why are we using all of these plastics in the first place and what am I putting in my bin and how can I change? What is that next big move? Joost, Jenny's in Camberwell. Morning, Jenny. Oh, hi, Rochelle. How are you? Good. What did you want to say? Um, I co-founded Borondara Hard Rubbish Rehome with um, Kath Creston back in the beginning of September. We are all about flipping the narrative from turning waste into realising it's a resource. And we have absolutely had a man- massive community response. We're over 2,100 members in just wow. over three months. Uh, Kath and I have personally retrieved and rehomed, diverted over 4,000 kilos of good items from landfill. Um, I've actually, we, we heard your program on the way home from delivering over 20 kilograms of mobility aids to a collection point for um, Vanuatu. And all of these crutches, walkers, um, uh, moon boots have come off hard rubbish. On our group, we we provide a place for people to rehome good items mm. that have many you know many more uses can be kept in circulation, but people just don't have options to take them somewhere yeah. else. Op shops don't take everything. Uh, but They're the other thing too, Jenny, is making it easy. And I think Yost, you mentioned that before as well. We've got to make it simple for people as well. If it's too hard to get your rubbish picked up or whatever it may be, well, I mean, it, it's hard to to tell, but technology is allowing. It's a it's a, it's a trading post of today. You know, we're trans. My kids don't buy anything new, you know. It's like uh, it's the older, the better it is, you know. And they're using technology, all these different apps to trade. It could be a dress to wear for one night, or it could be. And I, I'm so inspired by, you know, this movement because why do we need to keep buying something yeah. new? There's just stuff everywhere, really, isn't there? Yoast, there's a question here for you saying, I so love what Yoast is doing in this space. Do you have any demonstration sites open right now? That's a message sent from Kermit. Now, you did have your greenhouse down at yeah, Federation Yeah, Future Square. Food System is currently waiting for a permit approval to be rehoused at the Diggers Club down in Dramana, and then it will be open to the public permanently. Oh, Wow. And so, when will that, when's that due to happen? I don't know. I have to ask the council. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll, let, I'll let you make those calls. Yeah. Lots of questions around polystyrene as well from the caller earlier. And look, we are about to get a lot of stuff. Unfortunately, Christmas equals stuff and lots of packaging and wrapping it. Yeah, polystyrene is, uh, we've actually, uh, I've got mealworms at the moment that have got polystyrene um, being devoured by, poly, by the mealworms. But it used to be uh, collected here and transported back to China where they turned it back into products and uh, things like fill for bean bags and that sort of thing. But what's really exciting for me is a transition towards mycelium-based protective like Ikea and I know that Mila... That's mushrooms, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So you get to harvest the mushrooms as well, but you actually create like an alternative to styrofoam. So there is 
a lot of there are a lot of companies that are actually looking at alternatives. Dr. Trevor Thornton is a lecturer in hazardous material management at Deakin University. And Trevor, you've been working in the recycling area for decades now. Are we, and is Yoast right, are we at the cusp of something exciting? Like, are we in the middle of change, do you think, at the moment? Yes, good morning, Rochelle. Yes, I think we are. I think that um, we were, I would say, two or three years ago, we were probably on that cusp, but unfortunately COVID uh, came in and uh, uh, derailed a lot of work and a lot of progress. But I think now that... um, People are uh, are much more aware of what they need to do, and businesses are becoming a lot more aware. And governments are probably putting more money into developing facilities. So I think we're really on that edge now. That hopefully, uh, if we reflect back in a couple of years' time, we'll be saying, you know, this was the starting point. Do you think? The fiasco that is red recycling and the frustration that people are feeling and the disappointment that people are feeling around that. When we have events of that scale occur, do we lose faith in doing the right thing or trying to do the right thing? And do we take a step backwards, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's the, the big danger. And, and certainly, uh, you know, sort of perusing what's in the media in terms of... Uh, you know, letters to the editor, etc. that uh, people are saying, why do we bother? Uh, why we, we've been diligent over the years and taking our soft plastics. So why what, what's happening with our other recycles? And things such as uh, where supermarkets have got collection systems for, for batteries or other materials, people are saying, oh, it's not working. We're not, not going to bother. So this is where I think uh, governments and councils and business need to step up and, and, and do a lot of uh, education awareness of uh, to the community saying, hey, listen, there was a problem here, but the rest of it's all going quite smoothly at this stage. And what else can they do to uh, to try and reduce waste in the first instance? So, yeah, a bit of a worry that uh, we'll see that flow-on effect uh, happening in the next uh, sort of six months, 12 months sort of thing. I'd like to get, I mean, both yours, yours, but also your opinion on this, Trevor, as well. But, yes, I'll put this to you first. You know, when we started to introduce more bins... The, the outrage that was caused, right, by people going, oh, I don't need another bin. What do you mean another bin? I'm confused by all the bins. And people were like, how many bins do I have to put out? And people getting up to four bins, five bins. I mean, are more bins, and is, is organisation the key here? Are more bins the answer? I believe the technology exists to just go back to one bin. I, I think having hundreds of thousands of trucks driving around, you know, four trucks going to one house is insane. The, you know, we can fly to the moon. Surely we can sort this out, you know. And it, it, it's also about if it's – we need to think about the end at the beginning. If we have bottled water and there's no value to that bottle, if we want to buy bottled water, then maybe it should go in a can. It costs Coca-Cola less to buy an aluminium can than it does to buy a plastic bottle. And at the end of the process, that can goes into the bin and it's back on the shelf in 21 days because it's 12 times cheaper to make an aluminium can out of a can in comparison to virgin material. It's 10 times more expensive Mm -hmm. to make a plastic bottle out of a plastic bottle. See, I think the average person would think that a bottle, right, say a bottle of Coca-Cola as opposed to a can of Coca-Cola would be more environmentally friendly. I find that fascinating. Trevor, do you agree? Could we go back to a one-bin system? You know, is four bins getting ridiculous? Yeah, I I think so. I think probably four. Well, I wouldn't want to see any more than four. I actually have four where I live. And and we've got to look at the the system. I think, again, going back to your point about being on the cusp, I think that we've got to sort of say, is the current system working or not? What we tend to do is sort of say, okay, we've got a system where trucks come down the street, we put our bins out in the sector. How can we sort of manage that? So... As long as we've got the facilities, we do have the technology, as Ross says, we do have the technology to be able to sort. We've just got to build it and put it into place. And then it saves that confusion. Um, going back to, I think, one of your callers said, we've got to make it easier for people. You know, we've got to get rid of that recycling symbol on, on plastics, which is so confusing for people. Yeah, so one bin, people put it all in, and we have what's called, uh, say, a dirty MRF material recovery facility, where they can pull out all the valuable materials that have markets at that particular point of time, uh, composting and so forth. So I think we really need to sort of sit down and say, hey, is, is what we're doing, does it really work today? It might have worked a number of years ago, but not so much today with the technology we have. And I wonder too, how hard is it to 
start again. I mean, this is almost, it comes back to how do we just rewrite this and do this? But when you've already got systems in place, you know, when you try and, I, I sort of make this analogy of my grandparents' house, right? Who just added on all these renovations and renovation on renovation. And you got really used to it as a grandchild going, oh yeah, this room leads to this room. But if you see it for the first time, you'd get lost in that house, mm. right? You don't mm. know what room's what and you don't know how to get back out. So, but it seems normal when you're living in it and you just keep trying to fix something by adding something to it. Do we need and, to just pull I've- the house down? I think I think we need to sort of think very carefully about whether that's what we should be doing. You know, we had the situation where, uh, for example, where I live, I have four bins, and we have people come for their holidays, and they come from places where there's only three bins, and they're confused as about what to do. So, you know, we're talking about in the same state, let alone a- across the country. So, I think we need to sort of have a, a really good, careful sit down and say, okay, does the current system work? How many trucks have we got on the road? You know, what facilities do we really need? And then say, okay, well, perhaps what we have is the best. Or, no, we need to change that and just have the one bin system. So rather than just saying, well, we'll just add another bin and we'll just add another bin, mm. um, I think we really we need to get all the stakeholders together, uh, I think is the important thing. It's easier said than done, which is why I think mm. different councils are just going out and doing it on their own. It's always interesting speaking with you, though, Trevor. Thanks so much. No, no problem. Cheers. So yeah, Dr. Bye. Trevor Thornton there, lecturer in hazardous material management at Deakin University. What's interesting, Yoast, is that we're at a point in our lives now where we say, well, look, I come from a suburb where there's four bins, but Yoast comes from an area where, oh, there's only two bins, you yeah, know, it's yeah. sort of, it, but maybe that's okay if each council's trying to find its own solution. But I love the idea of what you are saying before of the differences made if you know that someone is watching. Yeah. But then that's a kind of a freaky concept as well well i mean uh, i live outside of melbourne and the current dumping of you know rubbish because landfill has gone so expensive it's we're back at that same problem that we had in the late 90s where people were dumping and i think that we need a new solution we can't just keep putting things up because it just makes you know driving through the sherbrooke forest and seeing that someone's dumped a trailer load of rubbish is just devastating sibs in wangaratta hi Hi, how are you going? Good, what did you want to say? Uh, just back in the day when we uh, when I was younger, we'd go to the chip and we'd take our rubbish there and then we'd have a look around and we'd take some back with us. And there's a lot of useful stuff that people just dump because they don't, can't be bothered or they don't have time or whatever the reason. Because there's a lot of things that get thrown in the bin that could be reused. Yeah, absolutely. And the the role of tips, where do we start with that, Yoast? I mean, should they should we have them? Should we be charging for them? Should they be managed better? Are they a res- are they just huge resource? Well, it's obvious that it's not working at the moment that people are avoiding going there because it's getting so expensive. So people are burning stuff at night. People are, you know, so I, again, I think when the can the government needs to look at that and say, you know, we need to offer companies solutions so that they can be comfortable in investing. There's a friend of mine, Graham Wilson, who's just invested millions of dollars in a plant that makes pods. So at the moment, we've got this insanity where we're pouring concrete over polystyrene. It's called a waffle slab. It's about 50% of the houses built in Victoria built on waffle slabs, which means that when that house ultimately gets recycled, that concrete needs to go to landfill. Concrete is a completely recyclable material. But because it's contaminated with styrofoam, we can't. He's creating these pods that replace styrofoam from bulker bags. So we currently don't have a recycling system in Australia for bulker bags. So all the fertiliser, grains, everything, thousands of tonnes of Mm. bulker bags are currently going to landfill or being burned by farmers. They recycle them, pelletise them and turn them into these pods. It's a great story, but without government support, that wouldn't happen. And without people knowing about them as well and without them being affordable. Before we have a chat to the CEO of Lotus Energy, let's go to Robin, who's been waiting patiently in Croydon. Hey, Robin. Hi, Lou. Good. What Um, did you want to say? I used to work in the pharmaceutical industry and all the packaging that we used had to be approved by the TGA. And there was merit behind it because... It had to keep the um, pharmaceuticals stable for the shelf life. But I don't understand why there's not a government body that approves the package, because packaging is the biggest problem. And Absolutely. 
I don't understand why there's not a government agency that you've got to actually register the packaging that you use mm. so that you don't end up using six layers. And it really annoyed me when we had the problem with not being able to send things to China because when you look at all the stuff that we bring in here from China and how much packaging there is, they Chinese companies were actually, you know, part of the problem. So why can't the government... Because if we cut it off at the source, yeah. as in, you know, instead of there being eight layers of plastic... And then at the end, Robin, it, comes, it becomes our responsibility to do the right thing with it and then are people losing faith that it's being recycled yeah, it's properly? You've got to go... You've got to start at the uh, end... Yeah. Go, you know, how can we make all that stuff so that it can be easily recycled? It's not that hard. And people were making comparisons as well. Robin, thank you to the cosmetics industry yep. and the cosmetics world as well. And whenever we talk about the future of uh, solar and batteries, questions like you just said, you always come up You're around. You're about to meet an Australian legend here. <laughs> Another one, of course. <laughs> what do we do with the batteries? And what do we do with all of the solar panels? It's a big introduction. Australian legend, <laughs> Anthony Vipont, is how you know now. But he's also the CEO of Lotus Energy. He's a local recycler of those really complex materials like solar panels and electrical equipment. Anthony, how do we get rid of those big things, those electrical pieces that ultimately are trying to save energy and do the right thing, but then create their own problem in the end. Yeah, uh, th thanks for having me on and thanks for the pressure, Yost, of uh, <laughs> detailing you as a legend. But uh, uh, look, it's, it's an incredibly big problem. And uh, one thing is really it starts at the consumer level of trying to minimise the waste from the outset. Uh, you know, some of these things like the previous caller talking about uh, packaging, et cetera, as consumers, we can make demands on manufacturers to say, hey, some of this, these double-layered bagging that, that they're providing to us or something of, of plastic that we don't need it. Um, I can jump right in if, if you like, Rochelle, but the, mm. uh, like around the, the solar and e-waste and, and cable, et cetera, that what we're currently doing. How, how many how many panels do you recycle at the moment? Uh, uh, at, the, at the moment, we do 200 per hour, uh, 200 solar panels per hour. So it's about four tonne. Uh, it's an average of 20 kilos per solar panel. Are you allowed to talk about, I know you're sitting at around 95% um, recyclability of them, but are you allowed to talk about what's what, the technology that you're building that's <laughs> going to make it 100%? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Um or I might, I might explain that you know, from from the outset, it was a little bit fortuitous uh, of how we this all came about. That we looked to recycle because we're quite big in renewables and installing solar, and we felt it was a responsibility to ensure that it was properly managed, that stewardship uh, of the end of life product. So we we ran some trials using various machinery and. Um, uh, I, I prefer the, the conservative number, you know, sort of 90, 95%, we're actually at 97 to be to be technical. Um, and the last part of, say, where we're at, in certainly in the e-waste and the cable and the solar panels, is primarily plastics, which is a common problem in all industries. Mm. Uh, and we ran some trials earlier this year around using... Uh, a, what's called a hydrocarbon extraction facility that essentially it's a, it's a very large industrial microwave and that uh, was quite successful so we, we managed to break down all of those plastics with no emissions importantly and uh, converting that to gas, oil and carbon black which are all highly needed commodities uh, in our marketplace which ultimately means that uh, as of March next year we will at 100% and no longer sending any uh, residual waste off to landfill. Wow, isn't that incredible? And of all of the shows that we've done on solar, for example, here, there's a genuine concern of their lifespan and how and it's, what which people is will do I find, with them to be afterwards. honest, ridiculous because it's, you know, the average solar panel, it's 25 years, if not well, longer. And I've it's heard. like, why don't we worry about our shoes or worry about the stuff yeah. that we're currently putting into landfill? I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, a, a ridiculous um, well, that's the other thing too, is fact-checking just how long they do last. I'm not yeah. sure where the seven-year lifespan 
came from because I have interviewed people who said, well, I've had mine for 22 years. Yeah, well, mine are 18 yeah. years old now. So, yeah. yeah. Yep. And if, you know, just on that point that quite literally there, there are products that have a much shorter lifespan than, say, their 25, 30-year anticipated product lifespan. But, you know, for instance, one of the early products was a BP Solar product. They were I've got them. Beyond shorter. Petroleum. Yeah, yeah. And they... <laughs> built an incredibly good product and to this day if bp solar modules come in uh, that are 25 circa 25 years old they're still working quite well today and just because the news is upon us just finally anthony if people are considering solar have solar but they want to ensure that they're buying something that can be recycled or that it has a long lifespan i mean how do you suggest people get that information themselves and how do they you know educate themselves is there information on your website are there places they can go to sure we we have some incredible internal intel because of knowing what's i guess you know lasting the test of time unfortunately there's not a huge amount of information in the marketplace one thing i I would say is avoid cadmium telluride it's a cdte product because it's uh highly toxic problematic waste to deal with and some of the old modules uh, do have that that cdt in it but you know it, this is an evolving space and you know there's, there's lots of incredibly great things that the state and federal governments are doing to address it but unfortunately it's very embryonic so yeah anthony thanks so much for just trying to explain a little bit of that for us we appreciate your time Anthony Vipont there, CEO of Lotus Energy. Yost Backer has been with you this hour as well. Yost, I couldn't get through all of the calls and texts here. Lots of people talking about how to recycle everything from the polystyrene that we spoke about, even, you know, coffee machines and things that they're receiving at the moment and what their local councils are doing and what their local towns are doing as well to ensure that the right thing is being done. Your film, Greenhouse by Yoast, it's just done a big tour. Is it available? Is it still showing at cinemas? I believe it is, yeah. Yep. So people can just Google it and they can go find it. Is it showing on t- on the, the box? It's not on no. Netflix? No. No, no, it's not. But there is a uh, Netflix, Zac Efron Down to Earth is on Netflix at the moment and it's the whole series is on Australia. Watch it. It's brilliant. Ten episodes. It's got um, some real uh, amazing Australian technology, things like the Glad Wrap made from potato peels and Ronnie Kahn's amazing work and the greenhouse is on it as well. Yes, Becca, have a wonderful Christmas. Have a great and happy and safe festive year, all of that stuff, and hopefully we don't produce too much waste, but unfortunately I think we're going to as a society, so let's just try and do the right thing with it. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Tomorrow we're looking at when you travel and if you're thinking about travelling this summer, how much attention do you pay to cultural and religious practices in that country? Is it something that you think about or if you think because you're travelling, it doesn't apply to you? Talk then.